This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The following podcast contains explicit language. Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Steve is a mocap golden retriever edition. It's Wednesday, July 6th, 2016. On today's show, the BFG, it was a Roald Dahl book, a classic. It's now a Steven Spielberg movie. It stars Mark Rylance as a melancholy giant whose life is brightened by a young orphan girl. We'll discuss with Laura Bennett. And then Animal Kingdom is the new beefcake noir from TNT. It stars Ellen Barkin as a crime matriarch. We'll discuss that with Willa Paskin. Finally, Facebook has changed its algorithm, the one that controls your news feed. We'll discuss what precisely this means with Slate's tech columnist, Will Oremus. Dana, astute listeners will note that we have a different Slate contributor for each segment. And one reason for that is Julia Turner Discovered at the last minute, she'd forgotten she has jury duty, so she was unable to make today's show, but I am joined by Dana Stevens, film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. I think it's also worth mentioning so people understand why I sound fuzzy and far away that I am phoning in from Los Angeles, where I'm spending the week doing research for my book. So, um, yeah, sorry about the bad sound. <laughs> Dana phoning it in again. <laughs> Literally and figuratively. <laughs> All right, Dana, before we uh, dig in here, um, presumably we have some business. What what do we have? We do. I mean, it's Julia who always does the business, so I'm, now I'm, I'm shaking in my boots hoping I remember all of our business. But one of the main ones is that we have a live show coming up at the Mount, which is Edith Wharton's estate, Mance, in Lenox, Massachusetts. That's going to be the evening of August 4th, and you can find out information and get tickets at slate.com slash live. So that's one bit of business. And then Julia also always likes to announce our Slate Plus segment for each week. This week, Steve, at your suggestion, we're going to be talking about, what would you call them? Cultural black mm. holes? Uh, cultural blind spots, maybe? Cultural blind spots, that's right. Things that you are embarrassed not to know about, wish that you knew more about, and just essentially regard as black holes in your knowledge of the world. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. All right, thanks, Dana. Uh, all right, moving on. The BFG was a Roald Dahl book. It's uh, something of a classic. It's now a Steven Spielberg movie starring Mark Rylance as a melancholy giant whose life is considerably brightened by a young orphan girl named Sophie, who he's kidnapped at first, but they forge a wonderful friendship. Together, they team up to battle the wicked human-eating giants in a scheme that requires the participation of the Queen of England, helicopters, and vials filled with the dreams of children. Why don't we listen to a clip? But why did you bring me here? Why did you take me? Well, I had to take you. Because the first thing you'd be doing, you'd be scuddling around and yodling the news that you were actually seeing a giant. And then there would be a great rumple dumpus, wouldn't there? And all the human beings would be rummaging and whiffling for the giant what you saw and getting wildly excited and then they'd be locking me up in a cage... And to be looked at with all the squiggling 
you know, hippo dumplings and crocodile dillies and jiggy rafts. And then there would be a gigantic look-see giant hunt for all of the boys. I won't tell. No one would listen to me anyway. I'm an untrustworthy child. All right, well, we're joined for the segment by Laura Bennett, senior editor at Slate. Laura, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. So glad to be here. Yeah, um, if you don't mind, I'll start with you. Um, were you familiar with the book, and um, what did you make of this adaptation? You know, I, I was familiar with the book, and part of the reason why I was eager to see this movie is because the BFG was a very formative text for me when I, uh, when I was a child. And, you know, it's, interestingly, s- some of the other films that have been based on Roald Dahl's work, like uh, James and the Giant Peach adaptation, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, The Witches, these were films that had as active an influence on my imagination as the, as the books themselves. And so I was, I was eager to see this movie, and there were things about it I found incredibly charming, and it, it sort of pains me to say this, but I felt like, you know, overall, it, it kind of, you know, it kind of has the effect of a dream blown into your head by the BFG's dream horn in that it's this vivid and lovely and sort of phantasmagoric stream of images that make you feel a lot of intense things in the moment. But it's also kind of baggy and aimless and not all that memorable the next morning. It just, you know, Mm. the pacing is off. It doesn't work that well as as a plot. But visually, atmospherically, it was stunning. And I thought, and Dana, you know, wrote about this in her review, but that it really succeeds most as an experiment in motion capture acting, that Mark Rylance is incredible. Mm-hmm. But the movie overall left me a little bit cold. Yeah. Dana, expand on that a little bit. Um, it's really only a success, technical success then in some respects. Uh, why did you find it that way? I guess my point in, in talking about motion capture and Mark Rylance's performance being the, the, the saving grace and the best thing about this movie um, was, was a way of trying to argue that it isn't only technical, right? That there's something going on in marriage of that technique with really great acting that um, that is creating a new form or style of acting. And that, to me, was the most interesting thing about the BFG. I mean, this is a very short, slender novel for children. It's almost a short story. Um, that doesn't keep something from being blown up into a you know a full length movie that that hangs together and makes sense. I'm thinking of of uh, Roald Dahl's Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is kind of similar in length and simplicity, and was blown up into I think a great children's movie by Wes Anderson. But I kind of agree, Laurie. There's a lot of static around the middle of this movie and and places that it tries to go and doesn't go, and moments when Steven Spielberg's sentimentality kind of grates with Roald Dahl's sadism, which is really what we love about Roald Dahl, right? Children love Roald Dahl's sadism. Those two tones don't really quite mingle. So there's a lot about this movie that makes it not great Spielberg, but still, I just somehow feel like the marriage of Steven Spielberg and Mark Rylance, who worked together incredibly in Bridge of Spies last year, right? Um, and and this, this ever-developing technique of motion capture, which keeps getting better and better and offering more and more possibilities to the actor's face, is, is something exciting. So in that way, I, I, I would recommend this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree that the best thing about the movie by a long shot is the performance of Rylance and for it to be so encased in a technical effect and still come through is just a just a warm, really deeply felt melancholy, you know, human performance as this giant is kind of incredible. It's a testimony both to Spielberg, uh, the technicians, but mostly to Rylance, who I think 
uh, I, I haven't seen him yet in Wolf Hall, but um, and I thought he was very good in Bridge of Size. But it's it's just terrific that he's at the center of a large movie. I thought, um, Laura, I thought it was sort of absolutely just as a film, a question of pacing was the biggest problem. I found the movie to be utterly frank, boring in parts, in parts where it was intended to be utterly captivating and charming. I didn't feel as though it captured the child's point of view adequately enough, especially the parts in Buckingham Palace with the Queen, which were supposed to have enormous novelty and comic effect. You know, bringing a giant into the Queen's castle and having them together hatch a scheme, you know, to rescue giant land or whatever, conquer giant land. Um, you know, feeding him a feast. I don't want to give too much away, but um, nobody appears to be seeing the movie, so it won't matter. But um, all of that I actually found kind of unfunny and protracted, um, even though I liked so many of the elements involved in it. But but setting aside pacing, it was really almost for a movie about a giant, the problem was really scale because you begin with this slender source material, wonderful, but slender source material. Then you have to inflate it. You have to bulk it out. You just have to make it bigger in all sorts of ways in order to just get it to you know 90 minutes plus uh, and justify a massive uh, you know uh, budget and rollout budget for a Hollywood film. And then you sort of want to shrink it relative to uh, the self-importance of other blockbusters and make it more melancholy and more human. And I don't think they failed at any one of those things. I just don't think that anyone can really pull off all of those things unless you hit a hole in one. And they didn't appear to me to do that. That is very interesting, and I I agree with that. And actually, out of curiosity, I reread some of the book because I was so frustrated by the pacing of the movie, and I found it really – it was funny to remember, even though there's not that much plot, it is very nicely paced. Sort of Sophie's internal monologue is brisk and efficient, and her no-nonsenseness infects the momentum of the storytelling, and it just doesn't indulge itself the way the movie does – and I'm not sure if that was a problem that could be avoided in a picture of the, in a in a movie of this sort of scope, as Steve put it. But it was frustrating. And I thought actually that I don't know if you two remember the final shot of the film, which was the BFG's face. It was Rylance in close up, sort of registering mm-hmm. a whole suite of emotions after having heard. I think it was Sophie sort of called out to him from her new. I don't want to give away the the ending of the movie, but and you just see his his incredibly intricate and warm and intelligent face just kind of register his his happiness and his affection and i thought that mm. shot encapsulated the strengths of the film in some way it's just you know it's a beautiful whimsical finely calibrated character study of this larger than life character and it's at its best mm. when it's standing still you know whether it's showing us the splendors of dream country or kind of portraiture of the bfg's very sweet relationship with sophie you know as a plot it doesn't really work but um mm-hmm. but it does work on that level it's at its best when it's standing still is so well put laura i think that's that is very very true of this movie and the book itself is kind of a static you know it really is basically just an encounter in a room in a cave between the giant and the little girl, and most of it is about conversation and about the giant's way of expressing himself, which you could hear nicely in that clip we played. And that's when the movie is at its strongest, when it leans on those strengths. Dana, um, you mentioned in your review that uh, motion capture has come far enough that maybe the major awards will start acknowledging um, actors who are... uh, um, you know, motion captured in their performance. A few years ago, didn't one of the Planet of the Apes movies feature a sort of surprisingly human performance? And we all sort of laughed, like we kind of appreciated it, but also laughed at the thought of of it being a great performance. But now maybe people wouldn't laugh so much. 
I don't know. I mean, I don't think people were really laughing when they talked about Andy Serkis, who played the ape either in the Planet of the Apes movies, deserving a, a nomination for an Oscar, which which he never got. I mean, probably in a way out of a kind of category confusion, right? Is Caesar an animated character or is he a, a best actor kind of kind of role? And because that question seemed, yeah, as you say, sort of bizarre to answer, it was like to a certain extent kind of laughed off. But I know that Andy Serkis, who you could say is kind of the inventor of mocap performance, having played Gollum in the Lord of the Rings movies and then King Kong in, in Peter Jackson's King Kong, and then the, the Caesar character in the Planet of the Apes movies. There's, he certainly has a cult of people that would be cheering for him to either be nominated in an acting category or, or for some new category to, to be created. Does that seem like a valid thing to you, Laura? Something you'd want to see enter awards culture? Uh, I, th- I mean, I think so. It's, it's hard to answer that question. But one thing, I mean, this isn't directly an answer to that, to, to that, to whether, I, I mean, I thought I love Mark Greenlance. I loved him so much in Bridge of Spies. I like to to kind of honor him from any direction possible. I I don't know if either of you read the, the Wired profile of Spielberg by John Muallam that focused mainly on his career directing children and sort of rendering childhood on screen. And there are some really interesting behind-the-scenes details about how, uh, well, how this movie was put together and how he got Rylance's performance and Ruby Barnhill, who's the young actress who played Sophie, um, their performance to to kind of to 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 jive to make it feel like they weren't to make them the actors feel not alienated from each other, even amid the whiz bang of all the sort of complicated technical work they were doing, and how it was this mixture of you know high flying CGI and motion capture, but also really lo fi. Staging, like they would, he would position uh, Rylance on, you know, a, a twenty-foot platform as Ruby Barnhill was on this tremendous table with humongous speakers and snozcumbers, just to make sure they always had their eyeline was was right that he she was always looking up to him. Anyway, so that is just, I mean, that is part of what I found. So when I read that, I just appreciated Rylance's performance even more, but also how Spielberg kind of engineered it. So that's not a direct answer to that question, but it is it's part of my sort of appreciation for this movie and just generally well, it for also our makes lines. you realize I haven't read that and it sounds fascinating. I will read it, but it, it makes you realize that creating a motion capture performance isn't just going on in between Mark Rylance, the camera, and then the technicians who later do things with his motion captured image, right? It also has to do with decisions that the cameraman makes, that the director makes, that people on set have to make. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, I think we all agree that the movie is better than its box office would indicate. So maybe go see it. But certainly if you did see it, tell us what you thought of it at Facebook.com slash Culture Fest. Laura Bennett, um, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's been uh, wonderful to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Animal Kingdom is the new TNT series based on an Australian movie of the same name. It stars Ellen Barkin as a beach town crime matriarch presiding over her beefcake sons and one grandson. It features surfing, muscle cars, TNA, and beefcake. It's Fast and Furious meets Fast and Furious. Before we dig in and listen to the clip, uh, let me introduce Willa Paskin. Willa, welcome back to the show. Hi. Um, I'm going to tap you here. Can you uh, set, set this clip up for us? Sure. The premise of the show is pretty straightforward. There is a young man named Jake Cody whose mom is a heroin addict and she ODs in the first scene of the entire series. And he's taken in by his grandmother um, and his uncles who are basically um, a crime family. Um, they commit robberies. 
And they try to keep things sort of simple and not make stupid mistakes, as this clip will tell us. And so um, this is the scene in which Smurf has it out with her sons about whether Jay should be able to stay in the house. Have you lost your mind? Don't bring your dogs here if you can't clean up after them. I almost stepped in it by the pool. It's, it's insane. I mean, what makes you think that we can trust this kid? I mean, we, we, who knows what Julia put in his head? I mean, she was too high to put anything in his head. And and if you're wrong, what? Like, I guess a decade or two at Folsom never hurt anybody, right? Oh shit! <laughs> Don't take stupid risks. That's what you're always saying. This isn't stupid. Right before a job. <sighs> you just gonna stand there? Yeah, look, I don't know, Smurf. Kid seems okay, but it's not a good time to have him around. It's just not. Okay, stay on him tomorrow. Just suss him out. Just take him to IHOP and, and ask him if he's gonna screw us? That's all you can think of. All right, Willow, well, this is quite a stew here. What did you What did you make of it? You know what did... It's interesting because it's it's not really that interesting a show. So in a certain way, um, my only feelings about it are like big picture meta feelings, which is um, it kind of has a little bit of swag. It's a it's a sort of show about machismo, like about male culture. It's about um, these tough beefcake dudes, as you said, sort of doing all of these. You know, they skydive and they paintball and they beat each other up and they roughhouse and um, they commit these crimes. That's sort of what the show is about. And and it's a, just an interesting moment for a show like that, not because those things aren't popular. Like that kind of show is always going to be popular. There's It's a bunch of sort of anti-hero criminals who are very handsome um, going about their lives. And they have this sort of overly sexual relationship with the Ellen Barkin character, which is kind of the only really original part of the show or not even original, but sort of the only striking thing about it. Um, but just making a show like that at this moment. I think that's interesting. It's sort of just so against the grain of like what is, of what's of like of what seems compelling in this moment. It's sort of so old fashioned in a kind of way, even mm-hmm. though it's very contemporary. That that is a little bit intriguing, and and in the context of like TNT trying to sort of make a name for itself, it does turn out if you think about it that though there's never been a lack of shows about men worried about being manly, there is maybe like this new hole that they could fill by just sort of going back to this really tired trope of making shows about Mm -hmm. macho dudes. Do you find it interesting that they seem to have tweaked it at least in two ways, related ways? One is that it's a matriarch crime boss. So instead of taking a, you know, a nerd uh, high school chemistry teacher and showing us his latent capacity to be a dark crime lord, uh, they've taken a mom, right? So there's a joke about burning cupcakes. She's both... uh, you know, she's both uh, someone who bakes cu- cupcakes and and presides over a um, this you know tight little crime unit. And the second is the pecking order of the brothers, which you know for all of the flexing and the beefcaking and the muscle cars and all that, which which is just to my mind utterly boring. There is at least something like a set of internal relationships, pecking order relationships between the brothers that's maybe potentially interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the Smurf character. Um, is probably like what is sold the show. They're like, we're going to make this show about this standard set of things, but it's kind of interesting because there's it's all run by this woman, and there's this kind of creepy and strange dynamic where she's um, she has a sort of overly sexual relationship with all the boys and plays them off each other, um, and sort of like is a preening. She's such a, like a preening mom in a certain way, but then also such a, such a manipulator at the same time. But mm-hmm. I don't know. 
in the four episodes that I've seen, it hasn't quite amounted to what it may amount to eventually. I mean, it's interesting. They all have um, – she controls them not just by being um, a, a, you know, a crime figure but by like playing on really deep mother love stuff, um, which is a little bit interesting. Like, like Baz, who's the oldest um, – he's the adopted son. He's played by Scott Speedman and he has you know terrible parents of his own who – and he was taken in by Smurf. He has like a – He's really can't disappoint her in a way that um, is a little bit interesting, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dana, um, you uh, saw the original movie, the movie that it's based on, Australian film. That was quite widely uh, respected, right? People thought that was a good good flick. It was very widely praised. It didn't make my list of the 10 best of the year it came out. 2010, I think, was that year. But it did. Lots of people. It was a debut film of this, of this Australian writer-director, David Michaud, who I think is involved with the show as well, right? Well, but he doesn't write or produce it. Yeah, I mean, I'm never clear what that means. Then you know, like his name <laughs> appears very late in the credits as if he contributed something important. But I, I, I don't think that he has written or directed either of the the four or five episodes so far. I would say um, not having loved the movie, but having been very impressed by it as a, a really powerful debut film. It's sort of like if you t- if you took very rough grade sandpaper and rubbed this series very hard, it would it would resemble the movie. It's all very smoothed out. I'm not and not that it isn't dark. The material remains equally dark, but it's presented as as you guys have both commented on in this very TV like way with every story beat predictable and you know a surfing montage whenever you can throw one in and basically has this sort of slick series ready feeling, which um, is very very different from the naturalistic feeling of the movie. But other than that, except for transposing the setting from Australia to what seems to be like La Jolla or some very <laughs> trouble-free <laughs> yeah, California. Oceanside, California, yeah. Uh, otherwise, uh, the, the story, even the character names are the same, and the idea of the, the woman, the sort of matriarch running the family, who's played fabulously by Jackie Weaver in the Australian movie, is also the same. It's interesting, though, because even just turning it into a show and this question of length, like I, as, as soon as I watched the first episode, I looked up the movie because I am not a spoiler. Per- I love being spoiled and I wanted to see I was different. And it did just seem that like by making this a series, so something that may or may not go on for dozens of episodes, that they had just like fundamentally undercut um, like the sort of propulsion and tension of the film just because they basically have to slow so many of those elements down. And and obviously sometimes that's what's good about TV because you get to know these kind of relationships intimately. But when there's this kind of like almost like point break sort of vibe mm-hmm. where like it's supposed to be like wild and action-y, um, a TV show kind of doesn't help with that, you know? So it is it does put all the pressure on these relationships and, and maybe they Absolutely. can't bear it. I'll tell you what I liked about it. Um, uh, I liked uh, that it seemed to have learned its Pixar lesson better than, for example, the BFG. So it starts with uh, giving nothing away at all, both the movie and the TV show. Start with the mother of the um, uh, kind of protagonist, the young kid, uh, dies of a, a heroin overdose. And so he goes to the one person he thinks maybe he can trust, his grandmother, which is the crime boss. And so you're, you know, you you begin with this supremely dark event um I, I felt like the young actor playing josh or jay he's called both is um is is actually quite good he's he he uh, you know you're basically entering pitbull america and um I, I find that can be really alienating you're supposed to be sort of jangled by it and frightened but also seduced by it there's you know open 
drug use and you know uh you know and just these you know surfing sequences and fast cars and crimes and all of that stuff i find supremely unglamorous incredibly rote and very boring but the fact that he's being led into it and is frightened by it basically has you know had a mother taken away from him by drugs and what his relationship to that world is going to be actually i thought that was somewhat affecting i I thought that that brought me into the story a little bit love ellen barkin she's terrific but um otherwise it iterates out in this incredibly i think kind of um predictable way but I was going to say something about it's a worrisome trend that we're now starting to have a lot of TV shows based on movies, uh, you know, just as the, the feedback loop has been working the other way forever, and that it seems like we're running out of, of subject matter in both areas. But then maybe it's too soon to say that, because when you think about it, a lot of great TV shows throughout TV history have been based on movies, which are sometimes not as good as the show turned out to be. I mean, Friday Night Lights might be an example of that. Willa, do you feel a sense of dread when you hear that a well-acclaimed movie is getting made into a TV show? Well, it's interesting, actually, because I've been trying to write a piece about this, this question of reboots going both ways for months. And it's extremely hard to write about because, in a way, the first reaction, I think, of everyone is like, ugh, why are you redoing that thing that was very good in this other form? Like, it's it's enough. Um, and then, of course, it just depends on the thing. <laughs> like, sometimes they turn out very well, and then you're like, oh, that was a great idea. And sometimes they turn out very badly. And it really kind of depends on the creative juice of the people that are making it. And there's no actual, like, rule or any reason that one will be good or one will be bad. You know, you could get Friday Night Lights. You could get Outlander, which isn't even great, but has its own sort of energy. You could, I mean, there's... Right, there's or Fargo would be one of those, too, right? Yeah. Because it's following. While other people are horrified, it's very existence. Right, exactly. And it's, But it's also it's different enough that even if... You know, if you actually love the movie and you watch the show, you're like, oh, it's not – it's sort of in the spirit, but it's a whole other new thing. I mean there's just so much TV shows that are now like based on films and some of them are just obviously paycheck grabs and some are sort of inspired. Um, and I think this one kind of actually just slots in between. Like I, I think they're trying to do something um, by sort of imitating all the things that good television is supposed to do, quote unquote. Um, mm-hmm. But it's just like – it's basically because the source material sort of lends itself to all the things that TV is supposed to do, quote unquote. There's something a little bit flat about it. There's something predictable. And um, it's like it's somebody's it's somebody's comfort show. You know, it's like some mm-hmm. guy gets home from work and is like, cool, I'm going to see these cool dudes like do these scary things. And that's a or and that's someone's <laughs> idea of fun. That's someone's law and order. But it's not like I, I, want, I want to party with that guy. <laughs> That was, that was like a terrible imitation of no person. Like there's no person in the world who's like that. But you know what I mean. You know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. it sounds like the worst Netflix and chill in yeah, the exactly. history of the phenomenon. <laughs> Willow, when you were talking about this imagined hypothetical ideal viewer who's a dude who just wants to come back and kick back with a, a cold one and the Animal Kingdom series, I was just thinking of, I think, one of the, the lowest slash highest moments so far that I actually enjoyed for its camp value, which was is the moment when one of the brothers who's been shot in an altercation, but he can't go to an actual hospital to have his bullet wound treated, right? Because the crime family would be uncovered and he eventually has to be taken to Mexico to be, to be treated. But there's a moment that we see him having sex with a woman who's berating him as she sits astride him because this visible bullet wound covered in bloody bandages has made him too unmanly to, uh, to get on top. So if that kind of if that kind of thing is your jam, then this might be your show. <laughs> All right. Well, 
<laughs> I think that says it all right there. Um, the show is Animal Kingdom. It's I, I keep on wanting to call it Animal Planet, but it is Animal Kingdom. Kingdom. It's on TNT. Stars Ellen Barkin. Uh, Willa, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's always just a pleasure to hear what you think about TV or anything. Thanks for having me. Uh, it was good. All right, moving on. Facebook is changing its algorithm for deciding what you see in your newsfeed. We're joined by Will Aremus, Slate's tech columnist. Will, I'm introducing you just right at the very top of my own introduction because I don't really know what any of this means. I'll tell you what I pick out as interesting and important about it. First, that it may possibly be a response to conservative groups and their outcry over um, not being mindlessly algorithmically um, included in trending um, uh, uh, the way liberal groups are. And secondly, that this had to be accompanied by a, something of a restatement of mission or a, or a mission statement by Facebook. So why don't you explain very patiently, like I'm a golden retriever, explain to me what um, precisely the news feed does, why changing it is important, why they changed it, and why they felt the need to accompany it with a, something of a touchy-feely reaffirmation of corporate values. That That is a great four-part question, Stephen, and I'm really... <laughs> <laughs> if I'm lucky, I will Thank remember so two much. of those parts by the by the end of my <laughs> rambling. <laughs> uh, Who's the golden retriever here? Will now? <laughs> uh, I, I will. I will try to try to fetch all those sticks for you. the The Facebook news feed is, uh, as I, I think most of us know by now, it's it's all the stuff that we see when we open that Facebook app on our phone, as we self-loathingly do uh, many days of the week, if not every day of the week, uh, depending on who we are. It is uh, controlled by an algorithm. And, and what that means is that Facebook has software that decides of all the posts you can see, of all the crap <laughs> that your friends and family uh, have posted, and all the wonderful stories that Slate.com has posted, which you no doubt uh, follow and, and lovingly read in your feed, of all those possible posts, which ones are going to go at the top of your feed and be be seen and, and clicked on and liked uh, and make everybody feel good, which ones are going to get buried at the bottom so that you will never, ever reach them, even if you scroll down again and again, you will actually just get repeats of the ones that were at the top before you ever get to the ones at the bottom. Um, that's a very difficult job. It is the job of Facebook's newsfeed algorithm, and Facebook is constantly tweaking that algorithm uh, in order to keep people from gaming it and in order to deliver Facebook's users the type of stuff that they want to see or the type of stuff that Facebook thinks they want to see in their feed. So that was part one of the question. I forget the other parts, but, but maybe I can just dive into what's new, which is that uh, Facebook has made has announced its latest algorithm change. And what it's doing is it will slightly devalue posts that are made by pages so that includes publishers like Slate, uh, and it includes basically everything that is not a person. So every, everything that's not your friend or family member or a random acquaintance who you friended one time on Facebook and now forget who they are, all that other stuff will be tuned down a little bit in your feed, and you'll get more from those actual people. Um, will, let me throw another one of those uh, golden retriever sticks out there. My sense was that there was a relationship between this change and the way in which it was announced that indicated Facebook might be somewhat insecure about the direction of its brand vis-a-vis its dual role as a media platform and a social media platform. Is there something to that? Yes, there, there, are, there are a lot of somethings to that. Um, 
It's, it was interesting. So Facebook has taken to fairly regularly announcing some of these changes to its newsfeed. It doesn't announce all of them. It's changing it all the time. But the ones that it thinks are more significant um, and, and feels like disclosing, it now explains with a little blog post. Well, this time it didn't just explain the change. And again, the change being that you will see a little more in your feed from people you know and a little less from pages you follow. It also published a separate blog post outlining what it called the newsfeed values. So uh, believe it or not, Facebook claims that its newsfeed does have values besides making money for Facebook. Uh, and it laid out seven of them in particular, uh, starting with friends and family first. So apparently the top value, as, as far as Facebook perceives it, the top value for its newsfeed algorithm now is to show you stuff from your friends and family. Next comes mm. to inform, then to entertain, then a bunch of other crap that, that nobody paid too much attention to. <laughs> but one of those other ones actually was, was interesting and touches on something that you mentioned. One of them was something like, I don't have it in front of me, it's something like uh, a platform for all ideas. Um, and, and that was seen by many probably accurately as a response to a controversy a month or two ago in which a former Facebook contractor accused his colleagues at Facebook of letting their liberal political bias seep through into the stories they chose for the trending section, which is something very few people ever actually look at. But it made a big stir nonetheless because it raised this possibility that Facebook might be biased one way or the other politically and could therefore be skewing the, the news and the content you see in your feed accordingly. And Will, what has the response to this change been so far? I mean, I know there's always a, an immediate and, and instinctive resistance whenever a familiar platform undergoes any change, but has, has the, given that this change is, is specifically about trying to address user complaints about, about Facebook's usability, has it been well-received so far? No. <laughs> no, it's been terribly received so far. And the reason is that the people – well, this is my, this is my slightly biased view. The, the reason is that the people writing about it are not the average users. The people writing about it are people like me. They're journalists. Uh, and this change is really, really bad for journalists, at least potentially, because it means that, uh, that, that all these publishers around the web that have come to rely on Facebook, in many cases for, for half of, of all their readers – um, now they find that it's going to be harder to reach those readers than before through no fault of their own. They're furious. Uh, it is, it is, you know, has thrown the media industry into yet another paroxysm of panic. Um, we have these all the time, of course. Um, but this is the latest one. And so the re reaction that I've seen has been largely negative. It, it is Facebook is putting the squeeze on publishers. And, uh, you know, this is the betrayal that the news business has been fearing ever since it reluctantly uh, decided to reshape how it covers the news around Facebook's algorithm. You might now question whether that was the wisest choice for all of these news outlets to to change the way they wrote headlines and stories and what they covered in order to get their stories seen by more people on Facebook. I don't think they felt like they had a choice. And up until recently, Facebook has been very, very good to the media industry. It has arguably saved a lot of jobs that would have otherwise been lost as part of this, this catastrophic transition from print to digital. But now Facebook says, well, let's correct a little bit back the other way. There are publishers now... Um, 
Facebook tells me, who are posting 200 stories a day on their Facebook feeds. And so from Facebook's perspective, you know, it wants you to have a balance of stuff from your friends and family and stuff from, from the pages and news organizations you follow. But if your best friend is posting, you know, once every two or three days and the New York Times is posting every 15 minutes, it's really hard for the algorithm to achieve that balance uh, without giving a little boost to the friends posts and, and maybe maybe uh, a little handicap against the publisher's posts. You know, for me, Will, as somebody who doesn't have to keep myself from falling into a hole with Facebook, but actually has to force myself to go on Facebook every once in a while, as much as I dislike the interface, the site, and the whole, I don't know, just the whole ethos of Facebook, it seems that this is a better change. In fact, when we were prepping for this segment, I just went to my Facebook page, my personal page, for the first time in a long time, so long that I believe my bio still says my child is about three or four years younger than she is now. <laughs> and uh, and I do like it better. I like it better because I'm not using it as a journalist, but as a human being who wants to see their nieces and nephews photographs. And I guess Facebook is suggesting for that kind of user. Would you say that's fair to say? Yeah, I think that I think that's exactly right. And and um, you know, Facebook's algorithm has always relied on these behavioral signals, this this data that this data exhaust that we that we uh, spew out every time we use the internet and every time we use Facebook in particular. Um, it it knows what stories in our feed we have spent time looking at, which ones we've clicked on, um, which ones we've liked. Uh, it knows when we click on a story, do we spend a while reading that story and then come back to Facebook and like it, or did we just like it because we thought it was a clever headline and then we moved on without ever even reading it. It has all of those types of signals at its disposal. But even so, what it has found in the last year or two is that it really, what it was really lacking was some more qualitative, sort of anecdotal, uh, humanistic information about what, how people felt about their feeds. So it, it knew what we were liking and clicking on, but it didn't know how the feed overall made us feel. So what it has started doing is in addition to all this behavior tracking, um, it has started just relentlessly surveying users. So you, you'll be, you've, if you've used Facebook, Dana, probably not you because you don't use it enough, but if you use Facebook on any kind of regular basis, you've probably been surveyed maybe at least a couple times in the last year or two. And it's asking you things like, what do you want to see more of in your feed? What do you want to see less of? You know, did this, you, you, you read a story in your feed and, and it's like, it's almost like the, the um, psychiatrist cliche, like, how did that make you feel? You know, how did that post make you feel? They want to know, they want to know whether, you know, maybe you're clicking and liking all kinds of stuff, but hating it all the while. And, and maybe, you know, your next, your next click or like will be the one where you finally decide, that's it, I'm done, Facebook sucks, I'm out. They don't want that to happen. So they've been gathering all this qualitative data. And one of the things they've found consistently is that people say, when asked, what do you want to see more of? They say, I want to see more from my friends and family. So even if that isn't the stuff that they're clicking and liking, perhaps because their friends and family haven't found a way to game the, the clicks and the likes the way us professionals, we professionals have done, um, they, they still want to see more of it. And so that is, I think, the, the genesis of this latest, uh, this latest change to the algorithm. Steve, I thought what you said in your, in your intro about the, the mission statement that Facebook came out with in advance of these changes was, was really interesting. Can we go back to that for a minute and just talk about sort of their, how they're trying to present their core values as a company? Yeah, so I should be clear. These aren't. This wasn't an attempt to define Facebook's core values as a company, but it is related to that. It's it's a value statement for the news feed, and and maybe really specifically for the news feed algorithm. So. Um, 
you know, there's a temptation to see when you hear that there's an algorithm, there's a temptation to think that it just, it's this, you know, intelligent uh, black box that, you know, the, it gets, it gets inputs and then it spits out outputs and it does it all via the, this uh, objective numerical process. And that's all sort of true, except that every line of code in that algorithm is written by people who have people at Facebook who have goals and they've never really told us what those goals are like what exactly is it that this algorithm is trying to show us what is it that the algorithm's not trying to show us uh, you know they must have known it to some extent one would hope they knew what their algorithm was trying to accomplish but they had never really clearly communicated it before and so what this is is you know it's an attempt from them to be or at least appear transparent about what they think this algorithm is really doing, what things it's prioritizing and why. And so, you know, in one sense, it's a response to the fear that we all have that it's just this like this rogue artificial intelligence that, that has a mind of its own and, and no rhyme or reason behind it. Um, you know, it, it could also be seen as a response to the idea that the algorithm is really just there to get us all to click on as many ads as possible. Facebook you know, doesn't want us to think that that's the case. Uh, or it could be seen at least in part as a response to that dust up about political bias um, where Facebook wants to say, look, no, our, our newsfeed algorithm is not about trying to tune out uh, Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh and, and flood you with Chris Hayes. It's really about connecting you with your friends and family first and foremost, and it's a platform for all ideas, yada, yada, yada. Uh, but in any case, I think it is interesting that Facebook felt either compelled or they felt that it would be in their interest to publish a value statement for this algorithm, which, as far as I know, is sort of the first of its kind. Hmm. Well, Will, this is, I mean, that was, I, I am the most enlightened golden retriever in America right now. <laughs> that was brilliantly done. You, you made even me care about and understand this change. Uh, thanks for coming on and talking with us. But can I ask you, will you stick around and endorse with us? I, I would love nothing more. Ah, excellent. All right, Will Aremus, thanks for coming on the show, and we'll talk to you in a sec. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana Stevens. What do you have? This week, there's only one possible endorsement for me, which is the, the films and the work of the great Iranian director, Abbas Kiristami, who died on July 4th at age 76, and uh, who I spent last night staying up and, and writing about uh, because I just I felt that he had, there's so many tributes to be written and so, so much to say about him that, that I wanted to throw in my own tiny little two cents. And I guess the film that I'll choose, because it's the film that I, I talked about in my little remembrance of him, to start with, if you haven't seen a Kirostami film before, would be Close Up. His film from 1990, I believe, is when it came out in, in Iran, about, if I even talk about what it's about, I give away too much as a movie, but let's just say it is a kind of half-documentary, half-fictional reenactment of something that really happened in Iran that brings up all kinds of questions about about cinema and representation and social class and it's just a beautiful masterpiece <laughs> so my endorsement um, for this week is Abbas Kiristami's Close Up hmm, Marvelous uh, Will what do you got? Like any good parent of a 15 month old virtually all of my cultural consumption lately has come in the form of board books <laughs> For children, <laughs> I would I would like to I would like to endorse the board books. This is this is maybe a little bit of an obvious choice. I would like to en endorse the board books of Sandra Boynton. Um, have we talked about Sandra on the show before? 
I don't know. I don't think Sandra has ever been mentioned on our show. Sandra well, that, that is a, a grievous error of omission. Her board books are amazing. Um, my child has been reading uh, the, the all-time classic Moo Ba La La La. Uh, and uh, you know, along with other favorites, uh, Barnyard Dance is, is a good one. It's 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 got this really nice. You, you can actually read it um, in the tone of a, the, the person who calls out the dance card at like a hoedown, um, and and it's got a great rhythm. It just really builds in the middle. Um, it, it it ends on a nice note, like virtually everything she writes. Moo um, Ba La 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 was was our son's favorite book when he was so tiny that. Really, we could only have been projecting onto him what his favorite book might be. But he did seem to like the sounds uh, that the barnyard animals made, even at that young age. Now, at 15 months, he has come back around to the point where Moo Ba La La La, after a hiatus, has become his favorite book once again. And that is because he is now able to identify, to match each animal with its distinctive sound, including his favorites, which are the pigs who do not say oink, 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 as you might expect. This is the, this is the premise. This is sort of the surprise hook of, of the book. But instead, they are singing pigs. They seem to be some sort of uh, barbershop trio. And they say la, la, la. And, and he... he says it right along with them. It gladdens our hearts. Uh, there are a lot of bad children's books out there. Uh, there are a lot of children's books that are tolerable um, you know, at best. And then there are Sandra Boynton's books, which are a delight equally to, to the little ones and the parents. I would like to endorse those. That's nice. I have a corollary. Can I throw in a corollary to your endorsement, Will? Uh, please do. I think your son might not be quite ready for this yet, but Sandra Boynton also produced a couple of albums for children. I'm not exactly sure in what sense she was the author of these albums. I think most in most cases she wrote the lyrics, other people wrote the music, and then they got various um, celebrities in to sing the songs, and they're very fun. My daughter loved them in her early childhood and I'm sure would like to revisit them now. The, the one that I remember by title is Philadelphia Chickens, <laughs> and uh, Philadelphia Chickens at like Muba La 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 involves a lot of singing animals and is really fun to sing along with and learn the songs. There's a particularly wonderful song that Meryl Streep performs on it that was always my daughter's big favorite. Yeah, that Philadelphia Chickens is an excellent one. We we played that on YouTube for him when he was in a cab and was very distressed by all the jouncing and stopping and starting. We we played it for him and it soothed him. Uh, also, uh, one more book I heard I didn't mention was it, that you made me think of just now is uh, your personal penguin. And the whole book is a song. It doesn't tell you what the notes are. It just gives you the lyrics, and so you have to make up the notes. And so we did that, and then we were able to hear someone performing it and, and find out that we had gotten it all wrong. Um, but perhaps, but perhaps, really all right in our own way. Awesome. Yeah, wonderful. Um, all right. Well, this week I'm going to endorse very quickly. You know, Steven Spielberg was going to film uh, the BFG in the Faroe Islands, which I visited a number of years ago to write a travel piece about. Fell completely in love with them, only to discover that they are quite controversial. Controversial for globally for a practice that I was made aware of when I went there that I didn't find controversial in the least, no more than hunting deer. They hunt whales, they hunt pilot whales, they've been doing it for a thousand years. They do it in a way that is to outsiders barbaric, but I think if you understand Faroese culture, uh, it's integrated utterly into it. They use every piece of the whale, and pilot whales are not an endangered species. Um, and it was a shame to me because the, the the that that final or penultimate shot maybe of the BFG is of what looks to me exactly like a Faroe Island. I mean, they're un. It's basically as if you kind of 
broke Iceland up into five or eight pieces, miniature pieces. Um, and essentially, the, this Viking people has been a f- population of about 40,000 has been living on the Faroe Islands for thousands of years and farming under austere conditions. And it just was one of the more amazing experiences of my life. But what happened was, you know, um, animal rights activists uh, protested. And even though Spielberg insists that this was not cause and effect, he did change the location to something that looks almost exactly like the Faroe Islands, the, the giant sequences. Um, I think they've gotten a really bad rap. I really do. I, if you are the kind of person who believes that a hunter should not shoot a deer and then use every single piece of it um, uh, for food or or other you know utilities, then I think in good conscience, you can object to what the Faroese do with the with pilot whales. But if you think of that as you know, integral to a person's way of living and being in the world, um, and they're not doing it for sport or certainly out of cruelty, then I just don't, I don't see the distinction. I think they've gotten a bad rap. So this isn't exactly an endorsement, but I think people should travel to the Faroe Islands. They should discover that culture. It's one of the more remarkable, if not most remarkable places I've ever been as a travel writer. I loved it. But anyway, my real endorsement is an essay by James Meek in the London Review of Books called How to Grow a Weetabix that he must have been working on prior to Brexit, knowing that that he might be able to tie it into Brexit. In other words, the relationship between English agriculture and the global commodities market in um, agricultural goods vis-a-vis European Union regulations that might now be repealed. And within the course of this beautifully written um, and deeply thought and argued essay about the nature of British landscape as it relates to uh, agriculture, he um, gives you some sense of the precariousness of the English countryside and how landscape, uh, especially if it's preserved intelligently and used intelligently, um, holds within it history and common and historical memory and how those things might now be quite endangered because of uh, Brexit. So um, I thought it was one of the most beautifully written essays I'd read in a very, very long time. He is a humiliatingly uh, gorgeous writer, and I loved it. It's called How to Grow a Weetabix, and it's by James Meek on the London Review of Books website. I think it's accessible to non-subscribers, but highly, highly recommended. All right, um, Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Will, thank you so much for coming on the show. A pleasure as always. Yeah, that was fun. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. And our intern is Lizzie Fison. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of that Panoply Network, and you can check out the entire roster of shows at itunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Laura Bennett, Will Paskin, and Will Arimus, and of course Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We'll, we'll see you soon. Yeah, this is a story of famous dog. For the dog that chases its tail, we'll be busy. He's a clapping dog. Rhythmic dog. Harmonic dog. House dog. Steve dog.